All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we want to thank you for uh, joining us for our live stream of our service this morning. Uh, for those of you from our community, we just want to uh, welcome you and thank you for uh, joining us for our uh, morning service. Uh, we want to say if you have any specific needs in regards to prayer, uh, feel free to touch base with our church website, and uh, we will be sure to do whatever we can uh, to meet the needs that are present in your life. Uh, last week, a number of people asked uh, where I was looking. So I want to be transparent with you and say that uh, we have just a couple of people, one of them is my wife and another friend that are sitting in the audience just to help this be a little more comfortable instead of staring at the camera uh, for the entire time because the camera is not real responsive as you can imagine. Um, we know that these are difficult times for all of us and uh, I just want to share a quick humorous story with you that uh, came about from last Sunday. My wife and I have two granddaughters. One is one and a half, and the other one is three years old. And uh, last Sunday, my daughter and her husband put the live stream of the service up on their TV. And so uh, we do a lot of FaceTiming with our granddaughters. And so when I came up on the TV screen and started talking, they started yelling what they call me, and that is Poppy wanting me to respond to them. And uh, Ava asked a question, and I apparently refused to answer her question because I didn't know she was there. And uh, she got quite angry with me. So that was just a kind of a funny uh, side of the things that are happening that will hopefully lighten your morning a little bit. Um, I want to encourage you also as a church family and as a community to think about people in our community that you can reach out to and seek to assist in this season of great need. So be careful that we don't turn inward and uh, kind of become selfish in our thinking but let's make sure that we're thinking of the needs of those around us. And I want to encourage you with a very simple promise from God's word. Isaiah 41.10 says this, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will comfort you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. One of the things that I'm missing in this season of change as a church is uh, our seasons of worship. And I uh, long and really look forward to the day when we're able to get back together uh, in our place of worship to sing praises to the honor and glory of God. But I want to do that not only alone, but I want to do it with you. So we look forward very much to that time. I want to pray, and then we're going to turn to uh, the book of Genesis chapter 14. So uh, you can be turning there. Let me just uh, lead us in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we covet your blessings uh, to be upon us uh, in this day and in this season. Uh, Lord, we know that many uh, within our community, within our church family are battling with anxiety and fears of loss, a fear of sickness. Uh, God, we are besieged in many ways. Uh, but we want to claim this promise and obey this command. So do not fear for you are with us. So God, help us to rest today in your promises. And to rest ultimately in your promises by resting in you alone. So God, we pray that you will today meet us where we are. I pray that your word will be clear for us this morning and that it will be compelling and that it will affect change in our lives. Let us not just simply go through an exercise. Let us come this morning by the Spirit to hear, to listen, and to be changed for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, of... About 28 years ago, I had the experience uh, 
of going to a place called Action Park. You probably need to be 40 years old or above to know what that is. That was a, an amazing water park in northern New Jersey. They had slides and drops and cliff jumps and all kinds of really cool stuff, an incredibly long, lazy river. And my wife and I, along with a couple of new friends, because we had recently moved into the area, <laughs> went there to enjoy the day together. And uh, at the end of the day, we were, as you can expect, exhausted. And uh, we all got out to the cars. And everybody's getting packed into the cars, ready to leave. And I'm feeling all my pockets to find out, where are my keys? Well, it turns out that I had, somewhere in the joy of that day, uh, lost my keys an hour away. And... Here's the question that comes to mind. Who do you call when you're in that situation? Uh, Who can you trust? Who would be willing to drive you from the park an hour home, get your keys, if you can find them, your spare keys, drive you back to Action Park, and then drive back home alone without you? All right, so that's a three-hour inconvenience. And what I, when I started to think who I could call, I'm going to have to tell you that the list of people in my life that I felt I could call in that moment was a very short list. And so my one friend, uh, John Smith, uh, offered to take on that task without belittling, without humiliating, uh, without degrading me in any way whatsoever. There was a big-heartedness that emerged in my friend John on that day. The truth is that many of us have gotten ourselves into financial struggles, into relational uh, struggles. Some of us at times have been unfaithful to commitments that we have made. Uh, We've made bad business decisions. And as a result, we end up in circumstances where we need a great-hearted person to move into the context of our lives and bring relief from the struggle that we're facing. So I think most of us can think through our lives and remember times when we needed that person. Here's the truth. Genuinely great-hearted people are rare commodities. They're not common. The person who will self-sacrifice, reach out, help you in amazing ways. That's not highly common, but it should be. Genesis 13 is the story, or, or Genesis 14, I'm sorry, is the story of a great-hearted man named Abraham, who lived by faith and joined with a capable God to bring blessing to an undeserving nephew who got himself into an incredibly difficult and dangerous circumstance. Now, one of the questions I want to ask is, why is this story recorded? Why is this account given? I think it's given to show how Abraham, by faith, came to prominence in the promised land through great-heartedness, And I think it is also there to call us by example to be great-hearted like Abraham was in our sphere of influence, in our context, and in our relationships. To be great-hearted means to be generous to others in a high-spirited and energetic sort of way, meaning there is a strong desire to make a positive impact on the life of others that is exhibited in the life of those who are great-hearted. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to uncover, by working our way through this story, I want us to uncover the evidences of great-heartedness in Abraham. Okay, to do that, I want to set the context 
of this account. Now, if you look through this passage of Scripture, you're going to find that there are a lot of names that are incredibly difficult to pronounce. So out of fear of messing up repeatedly, I'm not going to read through the text directly. I'm going to walk us through verses 1 through 13 that give us the setting to the story, and then the rest of the text will give us the the passages that we'll, we'll take time to read through and unpack the principles that should inform great-heartedness in our lives. So let's walk our way through the story first, okay? It's a story of, of battles amongst what in the ancient world were called city-states, okay? They were small groups of people who organized as, if you will, a country, but without all the structure that you and I tend to be familiar with. There was a normal flow in the ancient world prior to the development of large nations. The normal flow was this. A small city-state would emerge as a power broker in a region. Uh, typically, that king would subjugate other smaller city-states to himself, and he would collect tribute from them or taxes, typically in the form of commodities, in exchange for relationship, protection, and benefit. Okay, so that's kind of how things worked. And if, if you were the, the, the uh, leader of a large city-state that had others under you, the others under you were for you profit centers, okay? They were the places that you got resources to keep your kingdom, your army alive, okay? So that's the, the setting of this story. If a regional leader, a regional king, became harsh in his demands against other Uh, city-states, they would typically join together and rebel by not paying taxes and not paying commodities. And if you want to think about, in in modern movie terms, illustrations of this, think of someone like Spartacus, okay? Or think of someone like in the movie Braveheart, okay? Where there there is this uprising against an an overburdened uh, big king that needs to be thrown off so that people can be liberated and set free. Okay, in this story, Abraham is the Spartacus. He's the guy that steps up to confront the regional leaders who are oppressing others, injuring and wounding people and their families. So the way this story unfolds, there's a king from the east in verses 1 to 3. His name is Kedor Laomer, okay? And I'm positive that's the way that's supposed to be pronounced, all right? He is a regional king who has four other kings that work with him, and they have subjugated a pretty extensive group of city-states, and they're receiving resources from them. That's what verses uh, 1 to 3 tell us. The group that he had brought under submission had been under submission for 12 years. The king is getting greedy. He's raising taxes. He's asking for more tribute. And as a result, in the 13th year, the five kings in the region of of the area where Abraham lives, they've had it. And they stopped paying taxes. Well, in the 14th year... uh, the king of the east, realizes that his treasury department is suffering financially. So he launches a campaign to quash or squash the rebellion and renew the flow of resources into his country. So verses 5 through 7 tell us about this king moving through uh, lands of the east, finally into Palestine, getting ready to attack the king of Sodom and the other kings that are aligned with him. So there's four kings coming in to fight against five. 
So once the king of Sodom, who seems to be the regional leader of this group of five, once he realizes that this king from the east is coming and about to launch a battle against him, the five take up arms and fight against the the, the king from the east. The five lose the battle. And at the end of the battle, you find a very uh, fascinating statement. Look Look with me, if you will, at verse 11. All right, so the five kings fight back. They, in verses 9 through 10, uh, they have to flee. They have to retreat. In verse 11, it says, The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, all their food, and they went away. Now, the next verse tells you the tension that's present in this story that relates to Abraham, who is central to the story in Genesis. It says, They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. Okay? And, and here's what I'm going to call that. I'm going to call that the trigger for Abraham. In other words, all these things are going on. It's very clear from the text that Abraham is not involved in this battle or this conflict between the four kings from the east and the five in the area of Sodom. Abraham's not involved. But once the kings from the east take Lot, it says he's the nephew of Abraham. He's the relative of the man of promise. At that point, Abraham is triggered. Somebody comes in verse 14 and tells Abraham this story. When Abraham hears the story, he in a great-hearted fashion gets up from his seat and begins to take action to rescue Lot without hesitation. Abraham moves to rescue Lot, even though Abraham could have blamed Lot for his foolish decisions in Genesis 13. He could blame him for his foolish decision of living near Sodom to now living in Sodom. There is a a path of compromise in Lot's life that is very disturbing to a righteous person. Abraham knows that, and in spite of that, he seeks this rebel who has been taken captive by the kings of the east. Now, the story goes on. Abraham uh, calls together his forces. The, he, he follows them and chases them north. Abraham, the text tells us, has 318 men in his group. Now, if there are five kings and their attendant armies with them, then you know that the battle is lopsided. It is not likely that Abraham will experience success. And yet Abraham, in, in, in courage and in great heartedness, pursues to rescue Lot and to bring relief to the people that live in his region. So the text goes on to say in verses 15 to 16 that Abraham presses forward. Uh, even though he's outnumbered, he comes up with a strategy to defeat the larger uh, army. He divides his men, attacks at night. They fear that there's more men than there appear to be, uh, or, or that, that it's a large force coming against them. And so they move to the north area of Damascus, Assyria, and they flee and go back to their homeland, having been relieved of all of the success of their military campaign from the east. So, why is the story recorded? I believe this story is recorded to tell us how Abraham got involved in the land of Palestine in a deeper way and how he gained notoriety in the promised land. How God is 
picking him up. You'll notice Abraham is not aggressive in his pursuits. He's sitting back and waiting for God to work. This opportunity comes up. Abraham, in a great-hearted way, steps up and experiences blessing and victory. Here's the question I want to ask this morning. What is it that drives, that fuels the great-heartedness of Abraham? Okay, what, what, what causes him to care about Lot in any way whatsoever when we know Lot's history is not in any way attractive? Why does Abraham rise up? And why does he step out to be the man of God in this situation? I think the first answer is this, and, and, and as we'll read through it, you're going to see this. In verses 1 through 16, Abraham responds to the circumstance because he is confident of victory from God in seasons of conflict. God called him to be there. God put this situation in front of him. Abraham believes that God will make him strong enough by faith to handle the conflict that is right in front of him. Here's the truth. Every one of us faces seasons of conflict. We must use God-given resources in those settings to aid the undeserving. Okay, Abraham knows he is blessed by God. He unleashes those blessings in pursuit of an offensive, onerous, heavy-handed king and relieves people, brings freedom to people that have been taken captive and have lost their resources. Now, what happens next in the story, I think, gets to the, what I'm going to call the heart of the story. So that's the setting Verse 17 starts by saying this. It says, After Abraham returned from defeating Kedor Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah. Now, if you like movies, uh, this, this part of the story is, this, is, is, is the stuff that movies are made of, right? You have an, 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 an underrated man, Abraham, who acts in a powerful and magnanimous way, in a great-hearted way, to bring relief to oppressed people. He goes, he finds great success, and as he begins to travel home, uh, I wonder what's going on in his mind. He's just gone through a circumstance that raises his credibility in a very powerful way. Way. And I want to speculate that on his way back home, Abraham has to deal with an internal struggle. You know, whenever we face seasons of success, we face a temptation, right? We face a temptation to take credit for the success that we have experienced. I want us to look this morning just real quickly at Abraham's response to this season of success and prosperity because our temptation in seasons of prosperity is to value our benefits and blessings over the person of God himself here's the question will Abraham make that mistake will Abraham make that mistake and I want us to just let's just look through the flow of this text verse 17 tells us about the king of Sodom coming out to meet him. Verse 18 tells us about a king named Melchizedek, the king of Salem coming out to meet him. And verse 21 again returns to the account about the king of Sodom. So the flow of the text is this. The king of Sodom is coming out. Abraham meets with Melchizedek and is prepared for his encounter with the king of Sodom and the offer 
dangerous offer that he is going to make to Abraham. So what I want to show you from this, this set of encounters is, is, is the second cause of a- Abraham's great-heartedness. He valued God's person over temporary treasure. You know, the king of Sodom is a man who lives in a city that the Bible says sinned greatly against the Lord. Melchizedek, his name literally means king of righteousness. And it is very likely that the domain that he ruled over was a a God-centered city-state. It was a place where the name of God and the person of God was honored, revered, exalted, and obeyed. And so these two men, very different in contrast, these two kings, one wicked, one honorable, they come out to meet Abraham. I want us to look first at 18 to 20, the encounter with King Melchizedek. It says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. He blessed Abraham, saying, blessed is Abraham by God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, delivered your enemies into your hands. So the name means king of righteousness, but it also tells us that he is a priest of the Most High God. He knows and represents and points people in God's direction. That's Melchizedek's job. So it is no wonder that before Abraham meets the offer of the king of Sodom, God brings out a king named Melchizedek to interact with with, uh, Abraham and remind him of the source of his blessings. I think it's interesting that he brings out bread and wine, which would be the fare of kings. This is a royal meal. And so I think there's a sense in which Melchizedek is acknowledging the future exalted status of Abraham himself. He's acknowledging that God has given promises to Abraham and is at work in the life of this man of faith. He also goes on in verse 19 to say that Abraham has been favored by God most high. And here's how the favor has come. It says... In verse 20, praise be to God who delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, what is Melchizedek doing? He's giving Abraham perspective. He's saying, Abraham, you were willing to go and fight the battle, but I want you to know that God was with you, that God was working through and in your effort to make you more successful with him than you could ever be alone. Abraham is being taught to value God's person and promises over the allurement of temporal treasure. Abraham has come back, remember, with all the goods, with all the people. And so there's this powerful picture of a humble, great-hearted man leading this incredible array of spoils of war, bringing them back to their people. And in this case, he is uh, functioning as, a, as a, an incredibly successful leader in the land of Palestine. When Melchizedek talks about God, he calls him God Most High. That is to say the God who is without rival. And he also says that he is the God who is the creator of all things. He is over all things and owns all things. He is a sovereign God who gave Abraham the victory and can be trusted 
with the rest of the promises that had been made to Abraham. Now, I want you to notice Abraham's response because it is instructive. Verse 20, second half. It says this. It says, Then Abram, after hearing about the work of God that has been going on behind the scenes in his life, then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham's immediate response to knowing that he was blessed by God was to take a portion of what he had received in this conflict and to give it back to God. What is he doing? It's simply a token. Giving is a means by which we say, God, I acknowledge you in this small percentage. It's one-tenth. It's called the tithe. In this small percentage, I acknowledge that you are responsible for all the blessings that have flowed into my life. And, and, and it's interesting to me that out of his great-heartedness and understanding that he has just experienced success by the hand of God, Abraham immediately releases resources to God himself. I think it's a powerful picture. Mindful of God's blessings now, Abraham is ready for his encounter with the king of Sodom. So you notice what the text says. It says, the king of Sodom then said to Abraham, And it's interesting because who is the king of Sodom? He is a defeated, demoralized king who has just been rescued by a newcomer to the promised land who worships God. And as the king of Sodom comes to Abraham, it's fascinating. He's a loser, but he's trying to negotiate with Abraham. He's saving face. He comes out and says, Abraham, what a great job you did. All right, so he heaps praise and, and flattery, but you get the sense that this king is pathetic and patronizing, don't you? You get a sense that all he's trying to do is aggrandize himself to Abraham because what he's going to do next is say, hey, just give me back my people and you can have everything else for yourself. Now, that's a pretty uh, attractive offer, I would say. Uh, He is in this offer acknowledging Abraham's right as the victor, but the advice of Sodom is so different, isn't it, than the advice of Melchizedek, the king of peace. The king of Sodom says, ransack the spoils, take anything you want, just give me the people. All the stuff that's here, Abraham, it's yours. It's my way of saying thank you for your efforts. It's pathetic when you think about this account. He acknowledges his right as the victor, but encourages him to do something that would disgrace and dishonor God himself. When we walk by faith, we are not passive, but we are bold because we know that the battle belongs to the Lord. Abraham has gone out in great boldness. He has experienced victory by the hand of God. Melchizedek has reminded him of that. Then he's faced with temptation to take along with the blessing other temporary things. The question is, how will Abraham respond to this? I want you to contrast the encouragement of Melchizedek and the encouragement of the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom is driven by greed. Take what you can get, Abraham. This is your moment to get stuff, to get blessing. Melchizedek, by faith, says, Abraham, receive humbly what God has given you. And there is a substantial difference between those two encouragements. So the question then is this. How will Abraham respond to this strong offer from the king of Sodom? And here's the principle that I'm going to to give you this. Because I just want you to see 
how Abraham responds. It mean, it, the principle is this. Temporary treasure is not attractive when it is compared to God's blessings. Okay, temporal treasure is less attractive when it is compared to God's blessing. Abraham has a contrast. Melchizedek says, Abraham, God has blessed you. God has richly poured out favor upon you. God is with you. God is raising you up. God is fulfilling his promises to you, Abraham, that he would give you land, seed, and a blessing. And the king of Sodom says, hey, Abraham, if you want it, you can have it. Take whatever you want. Fill yourself up. How will a man of faith, a great-hearted man of faith, selfless in his nature, how will he respond to this? I want you to notice his very wise response. Verse 22 says this. It says, But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand, I have sworn on an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And I want you to think of something. Who told that to Abraham? Melchizedek told that to Abraham. He said, Abraham, you are the servant and recipient of a promise from the most high God who created everything. He owns it all. So how does someone who knows that respond to an offer of immediate benefit, immediate gain, overwhelming, and all of the all of the, the, the glamour of what it would be to be the returning King Abraham who rescued everybody in the region. Will he be attracted to that? Can we be honest and say that we all know what it is to face that kind of temptation, to take credit personally for what God has done in our lives? May God help us as God helped Abraham through Melchizedek. Abraham's wise response is simple. He's like, no thanks. And in saying that, he is refusing what he actually has a right to. Because he's gained a bigger perspective. Life is not about prominence. Life is not about possessions. Abraham is, by this encounter with Melchizedek and seeing the promises of God at work, he's humbled and he's being freed from the normal entanglements of, of, of temporary things. So I want you to see this. In verse 22, he's emphatic. I have raised my hand, which simply means this. I have sworn an oath. We do that in our country in the court of law. I place my hand on a Bible. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Abraham says, I have sworn before God with an upraised hand, symbol of surrender and honor. I have sworn that I won't take anything from you. It's a sense in which you begin to understand that Abraham understood what he was going to be offered. He understood the temptation that was coming to him to grab prominence and possessions. He emphatically resisted. Verse 23, I, I love the way this is stated. He says, I have sworn to the creator, God most high, God exalted, that I will accept nothing belonging to you. Now listen to what he says next. Not a thread not even the strap of a sandal. He said, I won't take a piece of string and I won't take a shoelace from you because I know your heart, king of Sodom. And I love and want to exalt God in my life so much that I will take nothing from you. And then he gives his rationale. He says, I will not accept even a thread, verse 23, the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Powerful perspective. Abraham says, Sodom, I see the cards that you've got upside down. 
I see clearly your intent. It is written all over your face. And I haven't had an encounter with someone who pointed me to God in a powerful and special way. And in the name of my God, I say no to anything you would offer me that would give me a shortcut to the promises that God has already secured for me. What a powerful heart Abraham has. What he is saying is this, King of Sodom, I will not cling and I will not grasp at the things that you put in front of me, that you dangle in front of me. Abraham is saying, I think, something like this. It's easy for us when things are in front of us, when shortcuts are in front of us, to cling and grasp like toddlers, to say it's mine, to say I want it, to impetuously grab at what is there in the immediate, thinking the temporary things are eternal. Often think of this with our grandkids. I think the things that my granddaughters today will fight for, will grab at, will cling to, will grasp, and say it's mine and try to take from others, one day will be things that are at yard sales or that are sent to the city dump. But for some reason at times in our lives, it has an attraction. What Abraham is saying is this, I've committed myself to God himself. The offers that you're making, Sodom, are not attractive. They're powerful, they're large, they're wealth, but they're not attractive. Because I have settled my heart with God. And on another note, verse 24, it's really cool. Abraham won't take what he deserves, but he is a man of honor as well. And he says to the king of Sodom, the only thing I want is the thing that these men who went to battle with me, they deserve what they earned. Abraham deserves it as much. But you know what? Abraham is living in a different lane. He's trusting God to be the abundance of resources for him. And so he is powerfully liberated from these things. But he also understands that the people that went to work deserve their pay. It's a very honorable response and very different response than what God wanted from Abraham in this circumstance. Success in this context exposes Abraham's true character. And what we see is beautiful. Folks, here's what happens in the circumstances of life. Circumstances expose my heart. They show me who who I am first. And then they also show me how I need to change. So in this circumstance, when everything is placed in front of him, Abraham, you want it, you got it. That's the... The motto of the king of Sodom. Abraham says, no thanks. I am quite satisfied trusting in the promises of God who just delivered me from my enemies. And he is quite willing to simply be a conduit of blessing that has flowed to the undeserving people like Lot, like the king of Sodom and the other four kings that he went to battle for. You see, that's how a man of God responds. Trouble has shaped Abraham in God's presence on a daily base, and it is exposed in this season of trial. Now, just this very simple conclusion. One is this. Melchizedek points to the ultimate Jesus, right? So if you go to the book of Hebrews, you're going to find that Melchizedek is a, is a prefigurement or picture of Jesus in a small way. Okay, he is, he is a, a gracious man who, who points Abraham towards deeper faith in God. 
And, and, and Abraham, in a great-hearted way, responds to this encouragement and follows the direction of, the king, of, of king Melchizedek in very powerful ways. May our lives, may our responses to the circumstances that we're going through right now, may our reactions, our love, our selflessness point people to Jesus like Abraham's actions pointed people to God. We are living in painful and difficult times. People are looking for hope. Let's give them Jesus in every possible way. Let's be intentional in our love for each other in this season as a church family. But let's also be people who intentionally love our neighbors like we love ourselves. Let's live lives that are freed from the constraints and desires and lust for more. And let's be generous with the resources that God has given us. In this text, there also is a beautiful, what I want to call a gospel glimmer. Uh, It's a picture of Jesus in the life of Abraham. Because in this story, what happens? Abraham courageously pursues, takes a calculated risk against great odds to rescue his nephew, who was clearly a man moving in the wrong direction. Lot had problems. But Abraham knew that he was not beyond redemption. And so he acts to bring blessing into the life of Lot by bringing deliverance. And what I think of when I think of that, I think of Jesus. Abraham took a risk to rescue Lot, right? Jesus did not take a risk. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost by a choice on his part to sacrifice for your saving and for your redeeming. And I don't care if your story is that you're a lot like Lot. It doesn't matter. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save, the Bible says, those that are lost. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus describes his mission with absolute clarity. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. He willingly laid down his life on Calvary's cross, shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven and set free for his glory. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today? The last thought that comes up in this text is found when you get to Genesis 15 and verse 1. God graciously affirms the selfless, God-exalting decisions of his people like Abraham. Lot made foolish decisions and forfeited the blessing of God. Abraham chose wisely and got God himself. And in Genesis 15 and verse 1, here's, the, here's this just beautiful summary statement of this whole story. It says, after this, this skirmish, this rejection of temporal pleasure, this clinging to God by faith, holding on to the promises of God, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield. And I am your very great reward. See, folks, I I can't cling to temporary things. I can't desire temporary things and cling to God and desire God. And Abraham, through this season of his life, is learning the incredibly precious value of a relationship with God. And it it is fueling everything he is doing right now. 
It's not that he's not going to struggle. He's going to. In a couple chapters, he's going to make massive mistakes because he find his, finds his faith faltering. All of us go through that in our lives, don't we? We go through seasons where things are going well. We go through seasons where things are difficult. Abraham is walking through a season when he is in love with God, when he, he knows that God is all that really matters. And when I read this statement, I am your shield and your great reward, I think of the Apostle Paul. I think of a man who could look at all of the, the very powerful status and resources that he had before he came to Christ, all of his credentials. And here's what Paul says, I count it as rubbish that I may have Christ. I see my clinging to temporal applause and possessions as toddlerish, as hanging on to something that one day will be foolish and appear meaningless, utterly meaningless. Paul says, I look at all the things that would refer me, that would recommend me, and he says, I count them as nothing so that I may have Christ. May God help us to read through a story like this, particularly the, the verses 17 through, through verse 24. The context is set in the previous verses, but the principles emerge out of this last section. Abraham is, Abraham is a man who is loving God above all things. And he's finding success in the promises of God as he walks by faith, not clinging to the temporal, but clinging to God himself. May God unleash us as a church family in this season of struggle to be great-hearted like Abraham was. And in that great-heartedness to capture the attention of a watching world around us that desperately in this season needs to see Jesus in flesh. May we, like Abraham, see the need around us, shed all of our personal comfort, and say, God, I'm available. Use me to make a difference in someone's life. Pray carefully about who God may want you to reach out to today. Pray about that neighbor that may need you to drop a meal off who will be simply overwhelmed by a small act because it gives them a small picture of Jesus. A great-hearted Savior who laid down his life to rescue rebels like you and I. That's the gospel in the life of Abraham. May it be true for us. And may we share it boldly with those around us who so desperately need to hear. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning. This text starts in a complicated fashion, but it ends in a very uh, poignant and powerful way. At the end of the day, Lord, you're all we have. When we watch our portfolios crash, when we watch health around us crashing, you're all we have. And we finally realize that you're really all we need. May we, like Abraham, say no to the allure of temporal things that make us spiritual toddlers. God, mature us like you did with Abraham. Give us encounters with Christ that inform and instruct and transform and change us so that we can be agents in our culture that actually make a difference. God, free us from selfish tendencies so that we can be freed to be selfless in the mind of Christ. I pray these blessings. God, we desperately need your blessing and wisdom now. 
Pour it upon us, we pray. In the beautiful name of Jesus, amen.